Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Take a look with me at uh, verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Messiah that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Yeshua. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind, tenderhearted, compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as in Messiah, God forgave you. Now, you know, it's interesting to me, looking at a passage like this, I always thought the people in the first century were really holy people. I always thought the ministries that Paul had established, being the apostle that he was, were ministries that were firmly rooted in the truth of God. I would have expected Paul, who is such an avid teacher of the word, uh, anointed by God in such a unique fashion as the teacher in New Testament writing, the Brit Hadashah, I would think that the ministries that he would have established would have been so firmly crafted and the people so thoroughly moved to be obedient to God that why would he need to speak to this group of believers at Ephesus in this fashion. In other words, these kinds of things were going on in that congregation. He knew that things needed to be straightened out among the believers at Ephesus. Despite his three years of ministry there, despite his ongoing teaching and his ongoing discipleship, you know, human nature doesn't change very easily. And it doesn't change very thoroughly. 
And so Paul is now reminding his readers that they need to change and they need to manifest the life that God has already instilled in them. Take a look at verse 20. He says, you, however, did not come to know Messiah that way. Of course, the question is, in what way? And he's, the way that they had not come to know Messiah is found in verses 17 through 19. In other words, he's saying that while in the world, before we knew the Lord, he said that we were darkened in our understanding. He said that we were separated from the very life of God. He says that we are ignorant of the truth of God's nature and what God truly has for us. He says that our hearts are hardened. He says that we are people who have lost all sensitivity. We are people that have given ourselves over to self-indulgence. And now he says, but you cannot find the Lord in that way. And what he's really concerned about is you cannot continue to experience the Lord in that way after having known him as well. It isn't enough just to remember our past and say, you know, I need to have the Lord forgive me of my sin. And then as our life goes on, knowing that we've received Messiah, knowing that we have experienced his forgiving grace, that we somehow can live the life that we used to live with all of the attitudes that we had manifested at that time as well. And so that's what he means in verse 20 when he says, you did not come to know Messiah in that way and you cannot continue to know him or live him that way as well. Our lives must change. And they are changed by the very grace of God over time by the work of the Spirit in our lives. But check this out, because this is really powerful things he says here. In fact, one commentator had said the verbs that Paul uses are baffling. He says that here we find some verbs that are only found here. Nowhere else in the Brit Hadashah. Nowhere else in the entirety of Greek literature. Paul is so concerned that our life would be changed, not only in its actions, but in its attitude, that he uses words in ways that have never been used before. And that is his way of saying, you need to listen to what I'm about to say, and you need to do what I'm going to tell you to do. The first thing he tells us, look at verse 20. You did not come to know Messiah that way. The word here is a mathete. Mathete is the word for disciple. It means a learner, one who has set himself under the tutelage of a teacher, a rabbi, a master, and is learning from that one. But notice what he says here. You did not come to know Messiah that way. In other words, he's not talking about learning about Messiah. He's not talking about learning of Messiah. He's saying we've come to learn Messiah. In other words, Messiah is our subject of knowledge. Messiah is, is if we were to put it in a school context, and when I was a teacher and my students would come in, I would tell them what this class is about. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. This is where we're starting out from. And what Paul is telling us is that we are all in school once again. I know for some of us, that's not a very happy thing to reflect upon. You know, I thought I was out of here. But Paul says, no, we are all ones who are now students once again. And our subject 
is Messiah. Many of us, myself included in many times and places, have prided ourselves in our knowledge about Messiah. And that is important to know, no doubt. Theology, the study of God, is an important subject for everyone who embraces the living God and has acknowledged Yeshua as Messiah. To understand the rudiments of our faith, why we believe it, and its significance, that is critical to our lives. But Paul's concern is not that we learn about him, although we must. He's saying we must learn him himself. Now that's a whole different point. Because you cannot learn Messiah in your study. You can learn about him in your study, but you cannot learn him in your study. You can only learn him in the crucible of life in connection with others. That's where Paul is going. That's why he said earlier, we are one in him. Over and over again, he said, we are to preserve the unity of Messiah because in the oneness of our body, we can learn him. Outside of a body, we cannot learn him. We can learn about him, but we can't learn him. And that's what Paul wants us to do. And by the way, it's not just Paul. Take a look at John chapter 17 in, in Yeshua's prayer prior to his death in behalf of the believers. This is what he prays. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Not that they would know about you, but that they would know you. And look what else he says. And Yeshua, and that they may know you, the only God, and Yeshua, the Messiah, whom you have sent. That's Messiah's prayer as well. Not that we would just know a lot about him, although that's a good thing, but that we would know him. This is very much like what I shared during Rachel's bat mitzvah. When in Isaiah 42, Isaiah tells us that the servant of the Lord is the covenant. He doesn't just merely establish the covenant, though he does do that, but he is the very covenant we are established in. I know this is sort of mind-boggling. It's hard to get a grasp of it. That's why the commentators say this is baffling. It's much easier for me to speak about knowing about him. It's much more difficult to get in a sense of what Paul is saying in knowing him. It is like what Yeshua said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the way. I am the the truth. I remember back east when I used to go into 57, 57th Street. Is that where Carnegie Hall is? 57th Street? Across the street was Carnegie Hall. And there was a pastor there by the name of Stephen Olford. I don't even know if he's still alive today. Is he? But he was a little man. And I think he was like from Australia but he, or from, uh, from South Africa. But he had that sort of quasi-English kind of accent. And I remember once, this was a man that was so on fire for God and for the truth of God's word that he once had a heart attack, was in the hospital, and one of the prescriptions the doctor gave him was not to give him the Bible. So he cannot have his Bible till he's out of the hospital. But he got so excited, you know, he would be up on his feet and he'd be moving and, you know, and just doing his thing as he was, he would be teaching 
uh, teaching the word. And he would say, you know, uh, I remember one of his messages where he said the word of God is like a sword, you know, and Yeshua used it. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. You know, he sort of backed up, you know, when 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 he was doing that. But I remember him once saying, as the way, the truth, and the life, he would say, without him, there is no going. Without him, there is no knowing. Without him, there is no living. So his point is, he is that way. He is that truth. He is that life. He is that reality that we are to embrace. And so here he says, he is that one we are to know. Not just know about, but to know him. And to have that personal interaction and relationship with him that we know him. And that our relationship in life is a life of him lived out in and through us. A life submitted to him that he would have his way with us, whatever that way might be. But he doesn't only say that, a mathete, that we are to know him, study him, learn him, do him. But he says, we also are ones, look at this in verse 20, that you heard of him. Here it's the verb acousite. We get the word acoustic from that. And here he does not say, and the New International is a bad translation, he does not say you surely heard of him, but he said you surely heard him. Just as we are to learn him, we are to hear him, his voice. And so it's sort of amazing to think about hearing the voice of Yeshua. Now here, I don't speak so much about those things because I'm more of a cerebrally oriented kind of person. But Paul is saying just that. That when he speaks, we've heard him. But now the question is, how does God speak that we would hear him? Take a look at the book of Acts. You know, when Paul established the the congregation, the gathering of believers in Ephesus, and here's how they heard Messiah's voice. He tells us. It says in verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue. He spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, the followers of Messiah. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. He's writing to these same people that he had spent those two years with teaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He said that you guys heard Messiah. How did they hear it? They heard it through Paul's teaching. Now, this is why I think the preaching ministry is so critical and so essential to the life of the believer. I know people say they get their thing from television, but let me tell you something you do not. I know people say they get it from hearing of the word over the airways, and there's something to be said about all that. We have some things going on radio, but that is not the place where God's voice is heard as it ought to be heard. It's where it is proclaimed and said, preached for the hearers to hear. 
And so what we need to do when we come on a Shabbat or wherever you might go, you need to listen for the voice of Messiah through the message that's being presented. That's why in the synagogue we have what's called the Bema. This is really just a graphics table all covered up, but it's a Bema. And in the synagogue, the Bema means the judgment seat of God. Paul speaks about we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Messiah. It's called the Bema because when the Torah scroll is laid out upon it and it is read, we're not supposed to be thinking as it is read and chanted, is that individual really chanting the right notes? Is he really saying the right words? Is he really staying on pitch? We're supposed to listen to the words and say, is my life lived in accordance with that truth? And that is the problem that we face. Because when we hear the word of God, we don't ask that question. We rather say, can I really identify with that person up there with sandals on his feet rather than shoes or something else? Can I really hear what's going on because of the way that person's dressed because he doesn't have a jacket on or his, his shirt is hanging out or it's a t-shirt. We do ourselves a great disservice because the only way you will hear Messiah is if you listen for him and not look at the mechanism or the vehicle through which the word of Messiah is delivered. And so when Messiah says, or Paul writes, you have heard him. Remember that time when you invited the Lord into your life? It wasn't some fancy schmancy reasoning that got to you and you said, I just have to accept this because there is no other alternative. You accepted him because the voice of God so compelled you, you could not do anything else. It was not the medium by which the message was delivered. It was the reality of the truth that spoke to your heart and to your mind. And we got on our knees and we said, Lord, save me. I remember that moment like it was yesterday. Lord, if you can do something with this life, do it. Because if you don't, it is a life that is headed for ruin. Now, I was only 17 years old. It wasn't like I was in the mafia or something. But I knew that my life was going nowhere. Paul's concern is our lives, even after we know the Lord, can go nowhere. If you're set and bent on not hearing the voice of God and not seeking to learn him. We might end up in the very presence of God, but when we stand before the judgment seat of Messiah, he's going to say, why didn't you listen to the words that were proclaimed for I was trying to speak to you rather than worry about the medium through which or by which it is presented to us. That's what Paul is concerned with, with these believers he spent a lot of time with. Remember, these same believers, John is going to tell them, you have lost your first love in the book of Revelation. It can very much happen. And Paul's concerned that it doesn't. He not only says we are to learn Messiah, we are to hear Messiah, but look at this. We are to learn in verse uh, 20, <laughs> oh, these glasses. But in verse 20, he said, Surely you heard him and were taught in him. Now, there the New International gets it right. Not only are we to learn him, 
Not only are we to hear him, but we are to, well, as he, said, as he puts it here, that we are to be taught in him. Messiah is our schoolroom, he's our subject, and he's our teacher. In other words, our life is him and not merely things about him. So that is the subject we are to learn. Now the question is, how well have we done in learning it? What will the test look like? And Paul tells us. Take a look at this at verse 20. Uh, excuse me, 22. And he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by the deceitful desires. In verse 24, to put on the new self. Now these are infinitives in the, in the Greek text. And they could be translated in different ways. Here, in my translation, they're interpreted or translated like imperatives. Put off the old self, put on the new self. But I think it is wrong to understand the text that way. And the reason I think it's wrong is because if you look at verse 24, he says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. And he begins to talk about what we ought to look like. In other words, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. If he says, put this off, put this on, therefore, put off. This is kind of weird. But the parallel passage to this, if you take a look with me, two, two books later, in the book of Colossians chapter 3, gives us an understanding of what Paul really is saying. Look at verse 9. He says, do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now that's different. See, here it's in the aorist tense in Greek. Now I know for some of you, you know, grammar was not my thing and it wasn't much of my thing either. But if you don't know this, you can't appreciate what Paul is saying. In Greek, the aorist tense means an action has occurred at a point of time with eternal results or consequences. We don't have anything like that in, uh, in English. We have to sort of describe that. For example, we might say the person threw the ball and it hit the window. So we see that he threw the ball, but then it had certain consequences. So we need to add some words in order to explain that. If we just said he threw the ball, we would know, okay, so then the action is completed. But the idea here is that an action starts at a given point in time and that action has consequences that go on. Paul is saying in Colossians, we have already put off the old self and we have already put on the new self. And they have eternal consequences. So now if you look back in Ephesians, he's saying, my understanding is, in verses 23, 24, because you have already put off the old self, and that occurred when we invited the Lord into our lives. At that moment, you put off the old self. And you already put on the new self, who is Messiah. That's what you did the moment you accepted Messiah. Because accepting Messiah is a big package. You know, it's sort of like a gift you get at a, a holiday, Hanukkah or something. And you open the package 
and you find, say, I don't know, I'm just going to say something, I hope it works, a stereo system. And then you open the package a little more and you've got all great speakers that go with it. And then with that, you got all these, all this other kind of equalizers and stuff to make the sound just as perfect as it can be. Salvation is a big gift with all these packages. When you accepted the Lord into your life, you were forgiven of your sin as I was. You were relieved of your shame and of your guilt. You already were restored unto God. And your old self was put off and God is put on a new self. All of that happened at salvation. Now what Paul is telling us is, you need to live your life the way you are, not the way you were. You can live the way you were. That's why Paul is instructing them. But you're not supposed to live the way you were. You're supposed to live the way you are. How are you? You are being conformed into the image of Messiah. How are you? You are now like God. As he created you in his image initially, which has been distorted. You are really like him, but you don't believe it enough to allow it to shine and to be manifested. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, when we came to know the Lord, he was the one we learned. He was the one we heard. He was the one who had won our hearts to him. And we said, save me. So what did God do? He left you as you were? No, he saved you. And when he saved you, he made you as he wants you to be. Over time, more and more of what he wants you to be will appear. But our problem is, we still oftentimes revert to the way we were. When Paul speaks about the old man, he's not talking about an old nature and a new nature, even though the word natures are used. Let me just say something theological for a moment, though it may be a little boring for some. All of us have one nature. We do not have two natures. You do not have a new nature and an old nature. You have one nature. It's called a human nature. It is what distinguishes you from rocks and fish and trees and animal life. You are unique as a human being. And as a human being, you have what is called a human nature. Now, Messiah is unique because when he came into the world, he had two natures. You have one, he had two. He had a human nature and he had a divine nature. That's why he's called the God-man. That's why he can say, I am. Because unlike us, he is fully God, but like us, he is fully human. So he has two natures a human nature and a divine nature. And we see him in operation all the time because he died on the cross. How did he die? Because he had a human nature. You cannot kill God. God doesn't die. Why doesn't God die? Because he's eternal. So you can't kill what always is. So with regard to his divine nature, Messiah can't die. So that's why he took on a human nature because with regard to his human nature, he can die in our place. Sometimes Messiah is hungry and tired. God doesn't get tired. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. 
But with regard to Messiah's human nature, he can get tired. He can eat. He can say to the woman at the well, I would like something to drink. He can say from the cross, I thirst. But with regard to his divine nature, he doesn't thirst. He never gets hungry. Because he is God, he knows all things. That means he knows what was, what is, what it will be, what might be. But with regard to his human nature, he may not know everything. So when he is asked, when will you, he come? He might say, I don't know. That's in the Father's hands. But with regard to his divine nature, he knows everything. So he's unique. He has both a human and divine nature. But you and I, we have one nature, a human nature. So then what is Paul talking about? When he talks about the old self and the new self, he's talking about the way you lived and the way you should now live. That's what he's talking about. How did you live in the past? That's your old self. How should you live in the future? That's your new self. Paul tells us what the new self should look like. And that is the test about how well you are learning Messiah, how well you are hearing his voice, and how well you are learning in him. Do you want to know how good you do on the test? Here it is. Take a look at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. How truthful are you? Here's the first test. If Messiah is the way, the truth, and the life, you're to be a truthful person. The word here for falsehood, or some translations say put off lying, is the word pseudo. It merely means being false, not being true about what really is. When someone asks me the time, and I look at my watch and I say it's one o'clock, and the person is late for his appointment, he said, you lied to me, you told me it's one o'clock, and I look at my clock, oh my goodness, my battery died at 12, I didn't know. We say I wasn't speaking falsely, I was speaking truthfully, unfortunately my, my watch wasn't working right. But if I was to say it's 12 o'clock, knowing it's one o'clock, because I don't want him to get that job because I'm going for the same interview, well, now I've spoken falsely. And so what Paul is saying is we need to be people of integrity, people who are truthful and not obfuscating what is really at the heart of our thoughts, attitudes, and actions. Look what else he says. He says, not only ought we to speak truthfully to his neighbor, and notice why, because we're all members of one body. You know, that's the whole point, is that the body can't work if it's fighting with itself. <laughs> you know, the body can only work when it's united to one another. You know, if my foot is saying, I'm going this way and I want to go that way, I'm going nowhere. And so if we're going to be falsely sharing with one another, we're dead in the water and we fail the test of what it means to be like Messiah and to be a learner of him. Look what else he says. He says, and in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anger is a big thing in scripture. There is such a thing as righteous anger. God gets angry. It's interesting the things that God gets angry at, though. If you look at Matthew chapter 23, the things that Yeshua gets angry with is always sin. 
He doesn't get angry with people who have difference of opinion with him. He gets angry where there is sin. And we have to be careful even about righteous anger because none of us is righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have to be very reserved in our judgment about how we react to one another because it's easy to justify bad behavior. But the fact of the matter is, anger is destructive. When you look, for example, at James, James tells us over and over about anger in his, uh, in his letter. And he says, be slow to anger. I'm trying to remember what one of the Puritan writers had written. It's just, um, it's not coming clear. But the point that he was trying to make, and I wish I wrote, wrote it down, but I generally don't write these things down, but I wish I wrote it down. But his, uh, his point was that, and, and it was something like this, I am determined not to, uh, how do you put it? I am determined not to sin in my anger, so therefore I am determined to be angry only at sin. Think about that. Because that's what Paul writes. We're to be angry, but not to sin. And he said, and the Puritan writer was saying, if I'm going to guard myself about not failing in that respect, then I have to be certain that what I'm angry at is really sin. And then perhaps it might be righteous anger. But look why Paul is concerned. The devil gets a foothold. Now, some may say, well, I confess that sin. You know, I was angry and I confessed that I went home, I prayed, and I asked God for forgiveness. But the problem is that when, if you do not confess that to the person you had been angry with or among, memories die hard. And while things, and people have said to me, hey, I'm cool now, I just confess it and I'm all done. But the damage that is left behind is considerable. It's like a scorched earth. And so Paul says, do not let the sun go down. What is he saying? It needs to be resolved quickly. Otherwise, the evil one gets a foothold and the fires burn significantly. Look at the third thing. So this is our test. How well are we with our anger? How well are we with being truthful? He says in verse 24, he who has, uh, who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. This is right out of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. But look at the motivation. He doesn't say to work and do something useful so that you'll have something for retirement, although that's a major concern of many of us, myself included. He doesn't say to have so that you can enjoy travel and you can enjoy, you know, um, whatever, concerts and things of that sort, ball games. But he says so that you can help others. And therefore, our work is meant not for only ourselves, but for one another. Messiah worked. He was a, some say carpenter, but he was a, uh, a stonemason. Paul worked. He was a tent maker. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, everyone Messiah calls, when he calls them, they're working. Think of David. He's shepherding the sheep of his father when Samuel is sent to anoint him. Think of the disciples. Every one of them is either casting nets or mending nets. 
Think of Matthew. He's working at a, at a uh, tax collecting booth. They're all working. And so work is a good thing. It shows usefulness. And when we can't work as we once did, we can always be engaged in volunteerism, which is work of another kind. Look what else he says. I don't want to belabor this. I've spoken long enough. But he says in verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The word here is rotten, unwholesome. It means it's used of fruit that rots. So his point is we can use words that just zap the life out of people. We can use words that just rot people's enthusiasm and joy. Rather, he says, and you can see this, this thing, put off and put on. Put off lying, put on truth-telling. Put off unwholesome, rotten words, rotten speech, and put on words that are meant to build up, edify, encourage, and stir along that people would be motivated to follow God and to walk in his ways. Look what else he says. In verse 31, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander. It's like it just keeps flowing from him. What kind of a congregation was this, that these things were so pervasive that he keeps talking about this? I always thought Ephesus would be a good place to worship. I'm not so sure. He says in verse 32, but rather be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving to one another. Probably one of the most difficult things all of us struggle with. But I think if we think about how we have been forgiven, just as in Messiah, God forgave you. Wow. That's an essay we all failed. (laughs) We're to forgive just as Messiah forgave us. So when we are violated, just remember the violation we've caused against God. And the extent to which he's forgiven us is what Paul is saying. Now, the very last thing, and I'm sorry I've taken much longer than I really intended. But in verse 30, I think Paul gives us, and the final verses, Paul gives us what's truly at stake in how we live. Because if we don't put off these old things that have been a part of all of our lives and simply go back to them simply because they're habit, There are things we're familiar with and maybe even things we like to do for whatever reason. And we don't put on the new self, which we already are, which these are the characteristics of our new self the way it is. Characteristics that make us more like God. Characteristics that are meant to be signs of conformity to the image of Messiah. This is the test. Not how well you can exegete texts of Scripture, although that would be a good thing. Not how well you can preach the Word and teach the Word. Not how well you can lead in worship or worship in response. Not how well you can pray. It's about how well you can live like God. And so Paul says, if we don't do this, then what we do do is we grieve the Holy Spirit. Those are the two options. We either put aside the way that we were and determine to put on the way we are and God wants us to be, or we grieve the Holy Spirit. 
And if we, what it means to grieve the Spirit is to cause him pain. That's the word. So you say, is there any way to hurt God? There is a way to hurt God. And that is by not pursuing these characteristics and attitude that are meant to be that which defines who we are as people of God. If we fail in this respect, we have grieved the Holy Spirit. And if we've caused him pain and anguish, how do we expect to be filled by the Holy Spirit? How do we expect to be energized by the Holy Spirit? How do we expect to be led by the Holy Spirit? How do we expect to be comforted by the Holy Spirit? How do we expect to be counseled by the Holy Spirit? How do we expect the Holy Spirit to come alongside of us and do anything in benefit for us if we are grieving him? You do not grieve him by making mistakes. You do not grieve him by not knowing as much of the word as you ought to know. You grieve him by living in a manner that is contrary to the character of God and the character of Messiah. We are to learn him, we are to hear his voice, and we are to be students in the sphere of Messiah. That is the course of study, (laughs) and that is the course of life as God wants us to live it. So who's signing up? No tuition, it's free. You know, you'll have the best teacher in the world and you'll have the best notes in the world to follow. But we need to sign up and that starts by inviting the Lord into your life. And if you've done that, it starts by determining to do these things and to stop doing the things you are doing that you shouldn't. It is then and only then that the Spirit of God will rejoice and the Spirit of God will bless. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for these words as hard as they are for each and every one of us to bear. But I pray, Father, that we heard your voice in the midst of what has been said. And I pray, Father, that in doing so, we will seek to learn you and to do so in the sphere of your presence. We are in need of your grace for all of these vices and all of these evil ways are part of all of us. But Lord, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we've been made alive unto you. Father, I can't help but think of the experience of the raising of Lazarus. And as Yeshua calls him forth from the grave, he says, release them and take off the grave clothes. Father, I pray that we can take off our grave clothes of the old life and to put on the sparkling, stellar, glorious clothes that we already are clothed in, but to allow them to shine evermore that individuals would see the goodness and glorify you, our Father, who is in heaven. For it's in Messiah's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. 
We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.